Hi, this is the Quantum of Podcast, Episode 3, brought to you by your host, Frank Wesley, connecting the worlds of restructuring, turnaround, and insolvency. Presenting you with insights, stories, and ideas from the industry that helps to put businesses back on track. Quantuma is a niche practice that specializes in advising a wide range of clients. And now with six offices, we're one of the fastest growing firms in the UK advising in this sector. We're here today to talk about a hot topic, the commercial property market, the challenges facing landlords, and how this impacts on professionals in the restructuring and insolvency sector. I have with me John Cook, who is the Revenue Manager with Capital and Regional, based in their London office. If you don't know already, Capital and Regional is a UK-focused specialist property real estate investment trust, focused on retail and leisure asset management opportunities. He has extensive experience and knowledge of managing and developing the revenue cycle for all its real estate assets, leading the team responsible for, amongst other things, credit control, cash collection, litigation and insolvency, and tenant covenant risk analysis. Well, that's a lot to take on board to start with, and welcome, John. Um, Tell us briefly some more about your background and one or two things that you're working on at the moment. My background, I've worked in commercial property for 25 years now um, in a whole range of uh, finance and property accounting roles. Um, Most recently, I've uh, been at Capital and Regional for nine years uh, as the revenue manager, uh, and during that time, um, we've seen some, uh, some some big challenges facing facing uh, particularly retail uh, retail commercial property, uh, particularly um, the times during uh, 2007 2008, which is when I uh, first joined here, um, and uh, certainly um, that, that big peak in, in insolvency we saw there uh, provided a big challenge for the business. Um, more recently, I think it's fair to say that the uh, the property and insolvency worlds of perhaps been a bit quieter uh, in terms of their relationships with each other. Um, I suppose more recently, uh, that said, we've seen the uh, prepack of Blue Inc, we've seen the uh, failure of BHS, um, which for uh, Capital and Regional and for BPF has provided uh, a huge amount of work in, in many ways. Uh, Kept you busy then. Absolutely. Uh, not least uh, the, uh, the CVA followed very quickly by, by the administration um, has, has been something uh, new as a challenge, um, and uh, there's needed BPF to be at the forefront of, of uh, representing the commercial landlords there. Uh, Capital and Regional themselves have exposure to BHS, um, and the important thing for us here um, has been um, really a long developed strategy um, with an eye to, to how BHS has been trading um, to to identify new occupiers quickly and, and turn around that property so it doesn't it doesn't sit vacant and mothballed unnecessarily and, and we've had strong success with that. Good, good, that's great. Um, certainly BHS is presenting some fairly unique challenges and um, the saga seems to be ongoing. Part of this podcast is to discuss the current climate for commercial property landlords and particularly following the vote to Brexit. I don't know about you John but no one I spoke to expected to see the vote to leave and we've all seen the subsequent turmoil in currency and stock markets, albeit I think that was a bit of a knee-jerk. So how do you see the high-level 
economic climate at the moment for your industry? I think I'll start by absolutely echoing that sentiment. I don't think anyone in our industry expected the vote to go the way that it did. I think key for our industry since then is whilst there was for a number of institutional investors a very short-term immediate impact and we saw some funds being closed for withdrawals, um, certainly uh, in terms of the demand for space, uh, we haven't seen any any uh, drop-off that might have been anticipated as, as retailers and occupiers look to, to hedge their bets and hold fire. Uh, we haven't seen any slowdown in betting activity um, and uh, indeed we, we've seen some rental growth on those bettings that we have completed since Brexit. Um, and uh, I think particularly in retail, uh, we have a number of retailers for whom their supply chain is uh, outside of the UK, so very, uh, in margin, very uh, susceptible to, to uh, currency fluctuations. But again, that doesn't, you know, we haven't seen, so far at least, any real immediate impact or, or concern uh, arising from that. Um, longer term, we'll see how that plays out, particularly with regards uh, what it might mean for employment uh, as, as one aspect. Uh, in the retail sector, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, EU workers in the retail sector uh, as to uh, what rights they may have to continue. Mm -hmm. and of course, that could that could be a big impact. Um, but I think that's uh, that's some time away yet for us. Yeah, thanks, John. I mean, no one would describe Brexit as a storm in a teacup, but I suspect that the media had a lot to do with hyping up the potential result and the consequences. And now life, to a certain extent, has um, started to return to normal whilst the negotiations go on in the background. So another of your roles is to represent Capital and Regional at the British Property Federation, your trade industry body. And as such, you act as chairman of their insolvency committee. How are you finding the role and what benefits are there for you relating back to the day job? Well, I've been in that role uh, for 18 months now. I've been a member of the committee for four and a half years. Um, and I think uh, the role itself is a, a fantastic opportunity to allow the property industry and the insolvency industries to come together uh, and really understand uh, the value that each one can, can uh, contribute uh, to, a, to a rescue and turnaround of a business. Um, UK landlords are frequently uh, key stakeholders in, a, in any business and any rescue. Um, and I think uh, the environment that we operate in today with consultancy practitioners benefits a lot from, from that role and the relationships we've been able to build. Um, perhaps if you compare it to situations 10 years ago where really landlords were considered as simply another creditor, um, nowadays there's a much more positive engagement and it's uh, empowering to be uh, at the forefront of that. Um, how that relates to, to the day job uh, and what I do for Capital and Regional. Um, certainly it means I have excellent access uh, to, um, to, to expertise uh, from policy practitioners um, and I don't mind calling upon that if I, if I find myself in a hole, um, knowledge-wise. Uh, and also um, simply be, being able to be, be engaged as part of the process uh, and, and support those businesses uh, and their rescues particularly where we have them as our tenants, uh, is, uh, yeah, they can bring some big wins for the business to be there early doors, as it were. Okay, that, that's interesting. I certainly think that the 
um, commercial landlords deserve some credit for dragging the sometimes reticent insolvency profession to the table to engage in dialogue um, for mutual understanding and benefit, but that seems to have been established as um, a path now for our respective uh, industries and professions, and hopefully it's being seen that both sides are benefiting. So I want to stay with the insolvency theme for the moment. There have, of course, been efforts over recent years to improve the understanding and communications between the insolvency profession and the major institutional commercial landlords. Um, what do you think is the current perception of the insolvency profession now amongst landlords? I think the level of engagement, and probably it's fair to the level of understanding um, within the IP community of the importance that landlords can play in a, a successful turnaround has, has grown and that, that understanding is, is far greater than it has been in the past. Um, I think it's fair to say that any business needs premises, and, and perhaps unless it's entirely internet based, needs premises to operate from and uh, so landlords need to be on side with that um, and I think what we can see there is the, the growth of the, uh, let's put it in inverted commas, the growth of the retail CVA um, is perhaps testament to that, of, of the understanding of imposing a, a prepack sale administration. Um, there was an alternative uh, and, and we've seen those grow with some success that allows landlords to, to support um, as a stakeholder. Uh, and I think the willingness of uh, IPs to engage after the event as well as before uh, is also something that, that has um, improved significantly. Um, just some, perhaps some of the little things like understanding that if, if a landlord has a unit in a shopping centre, there's a need sometimes to make that unit look nice, to make sure it's energised or de-energised as is necessary, um, and just allow the landlord access, whereas perhaps a few years ago there'd be resistance to anything without the landlord taking a surrender of a lease. Now there's, there's a kind of uh, helping hand um, to help the landlord mitigate his loss uh, arising perhaps from a closed unit um, so that he can, he can get on and, and find a replacement tenant sooner rather than being kind of uh, left with the black or white decision of, well, if you want to do it, take the unit back. So there is, there is recognised to be more of an understanding that whilst the landlord has uh, his objectives and the insolvency practitioner has his, there is benefit to uh, be had from working together and um, hopefully um, that that is much more prevalent now um, across the various retail insolvencies that we're seeing. Um, sorry John. I think what I'd add to that actually um, is that there's always going to be an element there of, of supply and demand of property as well. And I think that probably one driving factor of this will be um, that, that both sides understand that, that there can't be a position that's taken for granted that in a rescue a landlord has to suffer uh, a decrease in a rent uh, when there is greater demand for, for, for um, stock. Um, and so I think but, you know, there's an element of understanding that as well, which is, which is probably helping uh, both sides engage. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you touched on the CBA, uh, the company voluntary arrangement, which seems to be the insolvency tool of choice often used by tenants in distress. And we've seen in some cases these have been a success and in others not so. So do you think the CBA process is working well for landlords and what improvements um, might you like to see? 
I suppose the starting point there is I think it, it works well um, in order to give a business an opportunity to turn around sort of whilst they're under their own control. And I think that can only be a good thing. Arguably, the people with the best place to uh, I suppose, support that turnaround are those people already in position in the business. That said, I think what we have seen is this, the more successful CBAs tend to be the ones where the directors have recognised the need to change. And the less successful ones are those that have perhaps simply used it as a, a get-out-of-jail-free card to buy an extra year or so trade without actually fundamentally assessing what's different with the business and yeah, what needs to yeah. be different with the business rather than simply we can cut some costs by dropping a few units and cutting a few rents. It's what else do we need to do to get people in the door or people buying our product? And, and that's a big difference. And there's, there's excellent examples at both ends of the spectrum there. Um, yeah, I tend to think that CBAs without proper change are just sticking plaster solutions and it will result in um, a worse uh, result um, for, for everyone potentially um, further on down the line. Sorry, I interrupted yeah, you. No, I, I think that's true. I think um, one element of CBAs have always been where landlords uh, are compromised. The land, that landlord is invariably given the right to take back a unit. So from a landlord's perspective, it's a no-lose situation in that if the alternative is, a, say, a pre-pack administration or a, uh, just a, a total business failure, they're perhaps guaranteed a closed unit and no income whereas they could take a reduced income whilst finding somebody who's prepared to take the unit at a market rent longer term. So there's a question of, well, in many cases, why wouldn't the landlord support that, even if it's apparent at the time that it is a sticking plaster? It still gives the landlord uh, you know, time to work up alternative plans whilst at least generating some income and having his, his void costs and, and rates covered. Um, and I think we see examples of both, uh, as I've mentioned. Uh, I think what, what, is, what is apparent is we can look back and see that there are an awful lot of CBAs which ultimately have resulted in administrations and, and eventually total business failure. Um, but equally, uh, I think yeah, we, 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 we see retailers who are, are still operating with us some time after their first event and, and successfully so. Yeah, yeah. I think BHS set the record for that. I think it was in a CBA for a week before it actually went into administration, which I think is possibly one of the shortest on record. Um, um, that's definite food for thought for, for my profession. So, so you, you also asked uh, yeah. sorry, to the second point of your question, being what changes would be like to see. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think the, the real uh, element here that is perhaps overlooked on, on CBAs, and there have been attempts to address this, but, but really without success so far, is um, landlords are usually requested to take some hit in order to allow the survival of the business. A tool that allows landlords then to perhaps recoup or benefit from the future success of that business ought to be something that is recognised with, with a greater degree than it is at the moment. Um, and we could take travel lodges as a, as a good example where the support for, from landlords have allowed business now to be valued, I don't believe the sale has proceeded yet, but was recently valued for a sale at a billion pounds. Mm -hmm. Now, that wouldn't have been possible without landlords supporting the CDA. Um, yet, the, in inverted commas, clawback mechanism 
uh, from this is so ineffectual that landlords who were compromised still see no additional return from that success and, and the £1 billion valuation. Um, so that's really a, a focus there um, on a, a longer-term benefit for compromised landlords to support the CVA. And, and I think, actually, as we see demand generally um, to, to, to be there for, for good quality property, um, I think landlords will start to perhaps push back on CVAs a bit more, and, and these 90-something percent votes may start to fall a bit mm-hmm. if landlords really aren't happy with the long-term outlook for what their return might be in the event of a, a turnaround being successful. So the Travel Lodge CVA would be regarded as a success, do you think? But in some respects, has meant that it's, it means that landlords in the future will be a bit more circumspect about proposals that are put on the table before them. I, I think that's true. I think from, from a top-level perspective, Travel Lodge is, is a very good example of a successful CDA, but lots of landlords lost out significantly, um, and uh, particularly, uh, it's easy for me you know, working a, for a, a listed PLC property company, but if you have uh, smaller landlords, perhaps a, an individual or a, a small family pension fund um, who've invested in a property like this and find that the income they were relying on is lost, or smaller landlords who rely on that rental income to finance their, their, you know, their own debt against the property, um, it has significant knock-on effect that, that, that isn't headline. It doesn't get noticed, it doesn't get reported, but on a, on a lower level uh, can, can cause severe financial hardship. Uh, and CVAs don't take account of that. And so in many ways there are failures and hurt caused by even the most successful CVAs. It's only with the benefit of hindsight, I think, that we can actually start to learn lessons. Uh, And as long as we do on both sides of the fence, then CVAs should um, be seen as um, um, a more recognised and palatable tool for uh, genuine corporate rescue and recovery. Um, The fee regime for insolvency practitioners has changed recently. And um, in line with the um, movement to emphasise transparency and value, um, there is now uh, uh, new, there are now new requirements in, in play to um, be more open, uh, more transparent with creditors. Do do you think that insolvency practitioners are providing more value for money to creditors these days, or is there more that we can do? That's uh Interesting, interesting question. I think probably the answer with that it, it probably varies on a on a case by case basis. Um, I think one of the, the hardest things for, for unsecured creditors in particular uh, in, in uh, any insolvency, particularly with an eye to administration, I suppose, um, is the disproportionate level sometimes of IP fees that are drawn versus the return to unsecured creditors, and that can sometimes be hard to deal with. Um, uh, that's very much a function, I think, of the, the, the £600,000 prescribed part. Um, perhaps there, uh, a solution there might be to have a, a percentage of, uh, of assets based on, um, on, on the size of the deal, rather than that, that simple fixed ceiling, um, which does, I think, drastically limit the return to creditors uh, frequently when IPs are seen to come away with, with hundreds of thousands of pounds in fees. Um, 
you know, the question for a landlord and a creditor can often be, well, what have I actually got for that? Particularly if you're a landlord or a creditor who doesn't have an ongoing relationship with a rescue business. Um, and often very little or nothing. Absolutely. But that said, I think there's good examples, and, and for me, HMV is a good example where the, uh, the, the popular press took great delight um, in setting out the billions of pounds that were drawn mm. by the administrators versus the return to creditors of virtually nothing. Um, but from the retail perspective and the landlord perspective, uh, HMV's last two years of accounts show some headline sales of just short of £700 million over the two years. Now, for me as a landlord, that is undoubtedly sales that would have been lost to the internet if that turnaround hadn't happened. So there's an argument there that says, well, okay, we didn't get a return from the business failure, but we still have them in our shopping centres doing this kind of trade where we could otherwise have empty units. So is there an argument there for the, I can't remember the bank, it was in the region of 12, 14 million pounds of administrators fees to keep 700 million pounds of sales on the high street? Could be value for money, so you, but that's that's of course not purely a creditor perspective. No, no, that's um, a, a landlord perspective, isn't it? So, w would you tend to regard the outturn for a, the HMV situation as a success? Do you think it's uh, it's very hard? I think um, HMV, and indeed, I think any, any retailer involved in an industry that is so quickly moving to intangible product, um, product that lives in the ether rather than something physically you can purchase. What is the future for these, whether it's retailing, DVDs, music, video games? Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see those kind of retailers become Christmas pop-up shops, to be honest, because that's where the bulk of their trade, uh, of their sales comes from year on year. Um, I think uh, a lot is talked about the the resurgence of vinyl, um, and absolutely, you know, the, the percentage sales in HMV and all of the other stores are up massively, but from a tiny, tiny base, and I don't think it's, it's sufficient for a, a national business to, to keep operating in the long term. I hope I'm wrong, but... Uh, so you, you might see a further slimming down at some point, possibly. It's, it's hard to see where the demand for that physical product is going to come from. You know, the, the music now is consumed particularly by sort of, you know, the teenagers, early 20s generation, it's not consumed by physical product. So high street stores simply aren't, shopping centres aren't needed for, for that segment of retail. That's great, John. Good answer. So we've been chatting away for over 20 minutes now. Uh, let's close this podcast off. Um, thanks, John, for inviting me to your London offices in Victoria and your valuable thoughts. It was a pleasure speaking with you, as always. Uh, we'll watch the sector grapple with post-Brexit issues together over the next few months. So I'll sign off now until the next Quantum Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, thanks for listening.